You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, so let's open up to the 25th Psalm. And uh, after we read this, we're going to spend a little bit of time in the preceding Psalms, but we'll begin in the first verse of Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word, and I pray that as the words are coming out of my mouth, that it would be your words. Please protect all of us from things that I might say that come from myself that aren't from you, and I pray that we would hear you, that we would see Jesus and him only, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Last week, Jonathan walked through the 24th Psalm with us. The 24th Psalm, along with the Psalms preceding that one, the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, are part of a trilogy of Psalms that are a bit unique among all of the 150 Psalms. As Jonathan said last week, the Psalms that we see here in the, 23rd, the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th plant seeds for something that we see 
in the future, something that David hadn't quite realized yet, something that David was looking forward to and hoping for. And these three Psalms, 22, 23, and 24, all point to and, and have unique descriptions toward the kingship of God. And so in Psalm 22, David speaks about a suffering king. Psalm 22 is one of the messianic psalms. Or in other words, psalms that very clearly and specifically and with great detail point to the events of the cross. I want to take just a moment to to read to you a couple of those verses from Psalm 22. So if you'd like to flip back with me there, that's where I'm going to be for a couple minutes. Some of you may recognize some of these words. And, I, and the reason why I want to do this is to show you how specifically and with what detail David is talking about events that we see in the New Testament. So these seeds that are being planted in these, in these psalms, right before the 25th psalm, we get to see come to fruition in the New Testament. So beginning in verse 1 in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes this from the cross. And we can see that quote directly in Mark Chapter 15, verse 34. Jump ahead to verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. If you look in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see this story play out at the cross. Matthew 27, 39, Mark 15, 29, and Luke 23, 35. Jump ahead to verse 16 and verse 18. 16 says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 18, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You know, all four Gospel writers talk about this very thing happening. All four talk about the mocking of Jesus while he's on the cross. And then in Matthew 27.35 and Luke 23.34, we see the, the language about the people casting lots for Jesus' clothing. And John directly quotes this verse in his Gospel in 19.24. So there's clearly a sense here that in Psalm 22, David is not talking about himself. David is not describing things that he himself has been through. I don't don't see anywhere in the Old Testament that talks about David having his hands and his feet pierced. I don't see anywhere in the Old Testament where David talks about other people casting lots for David's clothing. David is clearly, through some kind of prophetic way, talking about something that is to come. Jump ahead to Psalm 23. David speaks of the shepherd king. One who stoops low to tend and care for his sheep. Many of you may recognize or have heard these words before. It's a a rather famous psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In this case, we look at John chapter 10 for the blossoming of this seed. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Again, David is not describing himself. And as we move ahead to Psalm 24, and Jonathan preached on this last week, David speaks of the righteous and conquering king. A king who reigns over all the earth and everything in it. 
As we learned last week, 1 Corinthians 10 reveals the blossoming of this seed. And I encourage you to check that out. If you missed last week or you didn't hear that sermon, all, the, all of our sermons are available for you at SiouxFallsConnection.com or on Apple's iTunes uh, podcast. I invite you to take a look at, at the last week's sermon if you missed it. And so in 24, we also see some language that, that David is clearly not using to describe himself. When he says in verses 3 and 4, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Again, these words are not something David is using to describe himself. These words are pointing to the only one who would qualify for this, and that's Jesus. So these three psalms point us directly to the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. It's an amazing picture of the Messiah, what he would do and what it would mean for those who follow him. And then comes Psalm 25. I think it's, it's a providentially placed psalm because it's a pivot from the language that we're hearing in the preceding psalms, and it's, it's a turning toward an individual prayer. It's almost like a prayer of response from, from how God reveals himself in 22, 23, and 24, and it's the response of a sinner. It's the response of a man in crisis. And it models for us how we can respond to this God that we learned about in 22, 23, and 24. It's a prayer of response, of confidence, of confession, and of hope. Hope that the God as he revealed himself in 22, 23, and 24, is the true God in whom we can trust. You see, moments of crisis in our lives is just the opportunity God uses to do what only he can do in us. Psalm 25 models this. It models how we, sinners though we are, can respond to this suffering king, this shepherd king, and this righteous and conquering king. In fact, what I hope to illustrate this morning is that our sinfulness is a necessary ingredient in our ability to respond to God, to even approach God. It's the relationship between the truth about God and the fact of our sin that we must begin to understand. Jonathan has said in the last couple of weeks that he would like us to get good at feeling bad. This is a difficult concept to wrap our minds around. And my hope is that Psalm 25 helps us understand that more today. So the 25th Psalm is, is a poem. And in the original Hebrew, it was written as an acrostic poem, meaning that each letter, each, each sentence of the, of the poem started with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So we, we miss out on that literary device in the English translation of it. But in the Hebrew translation, David employed this literary device in order to communicate what he was trying to communicate. He took the time to place this poetic device onto this psalm. It's the same reason why we, we write music or or create visual art, or, or make sculpture, or, or write music, it's, or, or write poetry, that is. It's because we want to communicate something that mere words fail to express. It's a hope to take something meaningful, maybe something bigger than ourselves, and help us to understand a little bit more clearly what it means. 
And so David took the time to do this with this psalm because evidently there was something important here, something a little bit deeper that we should understand. Did you catch that David was feeling pretty bad? David was feeling pretty bad a lot of the time. Many of David's psalms are, are prayers of lament. Things were going on in David's life that were very difficult. This one is no exception. He has some serious external and internal enemies at hand. His external enemies are out there. They're ready to get him. And he's really scared and nervous about that. And he's also got some internal enemies at play, that being his, his tremendous guilt and regret about the sins in his life. And so this psalm begins. He weaves from, from prayer to meditation, back to prayer, back to meditation, and then back to prayer again. And it's almost as if, as he's praying, God is revealing himself to David as he prays. And what is revealed to David about God and who God is and what he is like is important for us to understand if we want to experience the blessings of the Lord's friendship. Did you catch how the prayer began? Especially in the context of what happened before this psalm. This image of this great God. The prayer begins in the most appropriate way it could. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And in the Hebrew, this, this was not a, a temporary lifting of, God's heart to, of, of David's heart to God. It wasn't just a, a temporary thing for the moment of this prayer. What he was asking for is, is a permanent affixation of his affection on God. He was standing before this great God and saying, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. It's a humble and contrite posture. The first seven verses mark the first section of David's prayer, and it is one of, of confidence in the Lord. David declares his confidence that the Lord is trustworthy, that none who wait for the Lord will be put to shame. I can relate to David and his reasoning for making this petition to God. If the Lord did not come through for David and his enemies are victorious, it would not only discredit David, but also everything that David stood for. Namely, that the conviction that man must live by the help of God. I feel that anxiety too, don't you? Have you ever wondered if God would come through for you? Some of you are right in the middle of that question this morning. Some of you are wondering if you can trust God in this way, in the way that, that David has totally surrendered his soul to the Lord and declared his trust that God would come through and put shame to his enemies, that is, those people and those things that, that are opposed to God. And I think we wonder the same thing. Trust is a pretty big deal. And human beings can be the worst examples of trustworthiness. Some of you think of God in the same way that you think of people in your own life who have failed to come through for you. 
who have deceived you, who have put you to shame. Others of you know the guilt associated with being the one who disappointed someone else, who broke a trust. If you're like me, you have tasted both of these scenarios. These are painful truths about our sinful state, and and the truth is we're going to disappoint one another. People who follow Jesus understand this. These, however, are not the truths of the God to whom David is placing his trust. And to ascribe the characteristics of our human experience to God is misguided. Now, if you're here this morning and you would not call yourself a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. You hear Jonathan say this a lot, and, and I mean it too for my heart, that if, that if right now you would not say that, that you are following Jesus, I'm so glad you're here because my prayer is that our look into Psalm 25 will be a window into what it's like to follow Jesus. It's not an easy path. It's indeed a a narrow road. And I've seen a lot of people who claim to be Christians try to pretend it's an easy road or, or put on the appearance of having everything figured out. I can spot those people because I was one of them for most of my life. I mostly hid the darker things of my life. I cultivated at a, at a young age an appearance of Christianity. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The truth is that, that Christians are a, are a group of messed up people. The only difference is that we know we're messed up. We admit that we're messed up and we know we have to run to the only one who can clean up our mess. That's why we do this every Sunday. We don't do this because we think it makes us better than somebody else. We do this because we know we have nowhere else to go. We have to run to the one who can clean up our mess. That's what David is doing too. And there's really good news as this psalm goes on, so stick with me as David begins to describe the nature of God by the requests that he makes to him. Beginning in verse 4 in 25, David makes three requests to God that God would show him his ways, teach him his paths and lead him in truth. Now evidently these these three things are so important to David that he's willing to wait all the day long for them. So what are God's ways? What are his paths? And what is his truth? In verses 8 through 10, David's meditation on God begins to answer those questions. In verse 8, Good and upright is the Lord. So those two things, the Lord is, both at the same time, both fully and complete. So the Lord is upright. That means the Lord is just. He is concerned about what is right. He does not ignore sin. He does not brush it under the rug. He will judge. He will have the final say. Those opposed to God will not be victorious. He is fully judged fully upright. And at the very same time, the Lord is good. He desires to right what is wrong. He desires to show pardon and to show us mercy and to rescue and to redeem. He is fully that. Some of you this morning need to hear that God is fully upright, that God is just, that God will not ignore sin, and that He will take care of the wrongs. 
There's other, others of you in the room that really need to hear this morning that God is good. That He desires good things for you. Desires to rescue and redeem you. He's both at the same time. And because of these attributes, look, look, look what it says at the end of verse 8. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. Did you see that? Therefore, or in other words, because of his goodness and uprightness, what does he do? Instructs sinners. He doesn't instruct people who are really good. He doesn't instruct people who are really good at pretending to be Christians. He instructs sinners. Next, in verse 10, the Lord's paths are steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love. This is a this is a deeper kind of love, the kind that is forever. It's steady. It's never changing. It's not dependent on us or our mood or our behavior. It remains true. I think we can get tripped up on this one because of our experience with each other and some ways that you might have been hurt in this way. But it doesn't change the fact that, that the Lord's attribute is steadfast. And His faithfulness is loyal. His faithfulness is dependable for the long term. It's constant. It's, it's based on a, on a pledge or a promise. And the Lord is faithful primarily because it glorifies Him. He's faithful because God said, hey, I promise to be faithful to you. Not because we deserve that, but because he said that that's what he's going to be. And it testifies to his nature. And who does the Lord lead in these ways? To whom does he reveal the truth? The humble. He teaches the humble his ways. Only the humble who have had Satan's deceptions and their own illusions broken can receive the truth. This is the relationship that I spoke about earlier between the fact of our sinfulness and the truth of God's faithfulness and steadfast love and goodness and uprightness. So I'll share with you a, a story about an illusion of my own that was recently broken. My wife and I moved to Sioux Falls about six years ago and I took the job at the university. And uh, before moving here, um, Janet and I had, had it all sort of worked out in our minds about how that was going to go. So we, we, we made this plan uh, based on our own brilliance, and, um, and we thought we would be in Sioux Falls for about three to five years, and we're approaching our sixth anniversary here. And so, um, so something happened in the middle there for us. And the, those first few years, when we moved to Sioux Falls, we were fighting so hard to make our vision of what this was going to be come to fruition. And when I say fighting, we were fighting. We were struggling to make this what we wanted it to be. And so, in the middle of that time, in the middle of the three to five year mark, where we had our brilliant idea that we were going to going to move on to do another thing. God granted us the opportunity to check that possibility out. 
And so for a period of several months during this time, we were exploring this opportunity uh, back in a, in a place where we used to live. And, and when, it, when, when we first started exploring this, we, we thought for sure this was going to happen and this was going to be the thing that we do. And at the end of this very long three-month process, we, we both went out there and we were, uh, we were touring around and, and I was having interviews and, and Janet was, was looking around the town that we were thinking about moving to and we came together at the end of that really long day and we looked at each other and it was very clear in both of our spirits that the answer was no. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. We came home and I knew the answer was no, but I was wrestling so much with it, and, and I was praying about it, and God had already told me the answer, but I was hanging on, I was hanging on, and I was hanging on, and I finally had to make the call to my friend who I was working with, and I was, I was shaking as I told him that we weren't going to come. And that moment began a series of events of God's provision in our lives. Shortly after that, Janet and I and our family began attending Connection. And shortly after that, God began to reveal himself to me in the way of peeling my fingers off my own illusions about what I was supposed to be doing with my life. And turning that pride breaking that pride and turning my heart toward Him. That's not a Hallmark card. I know that sounds really neat, but it was painful. It was painful for me to realize how prideful I was. It was painful to know how strongly I was holding on to something that wasn't for God. And then being a part of this church and being a part of a place that disciples and, and, and invests in its people, God began to reveal Himself me and to my family and so I share that with you because I think it illustrates the essence of what it means to feel good about feeling bad I don't really want to fall for Satan's deceptions I don't really want to create illusions for my own life that are not biblical or not God honoring but I do it because it's my nature to do that it's your nature to do that. Sin is not something that you do. It's something that you are. And we must begin to see the difference. This is why. This is why when Jonathan charges us sometimes when he's preaching to go out this week and, and, and be better and, and not sin, none of us would show up the next week. Because we can't do it. This is why Paul says in, in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 and 15 through 20. You can turn there with me if you'd like. I'm gonna grab a tissue. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, that Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I, do, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Do you see that? Separation there? 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So let's go back to Psalm 25. We skipped over something in verses 6 and 7. Look at the three things that David asks God to do there. He asks God to remember his mercy and steadfast love because they are from old. Meaning, the ways that God reveals himself to us, we can track all the way back through time and we can look at the way God has revealed himself. God's faithfulness, God's steadfast love, God's goodness, God's uprightness. We have examples of that, that that this book tells us all about, leading up to this very day. So we can confidently predict the future about how God is going to act, how God is going to reveal himself to us. So whatever the thing is that we're bringing to God this morning, what makes that any different than all of the other experiences in history where God has shown up? The things that we bring to Him fall into that same category of all the things that He's been good and faithful about. He continues to say, in verses 6-7, through seven, he, he asks God to remember not the sins of His youth or His transgressions. And finally, He asks God to remember Him, that is David. Basically, He's asking God to, to remember who God has always been, who God is, who God will forever be, and to remember David apart from David's sins. And then we jump ahead to verse 10, especially the last part, and something really important happens. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For who? Those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. And this causes David to pause. And there's this prayer right in the middle. It's one verse long. Verse 11. And what does God say, or what does David say, rather? For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Confession, humility, and trust are necessary ingredients in receiving God's guidance. These things go together. To whom does God pour out his mercy and steadfast love? Sinners. Who does he lead in the truth? Sinners, to whom is he faithful? Sinners, feel good about feeling bad. This is reason to celebrate. Remember back in in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, David asks a question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, here's another question in verse 12 that I think is meant to be asked right alongside that one. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Now, fear here is not so much the kind of fear we associate with anxiety or terror. Fear here really means reverence and awe and and majesty and wonder. It's the person who sees God as the suffering king, the shepherd king, the conquering king, and stands humbled before him and says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. How can we ascend the hill of the Lord? 
to the table of the Lord? Because Jesus is our suffering King. Jesus is our shepherd King. Jesus is our conquering, victorious King over sin and death. Jesus made a way for David's prayer to be answered, for our prayers to be answered. Because of Jesus, God looks at us and sees the beautiful creation He made in His image apart from our sins. Apart from our sins. And what will this great King do for His people? Him will He instruct in the way. Verse 12. Him will He instruct in the way He should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being. His offspring shall inherit the land. Now, before you start to think this, is an arrange, this arrangement is a transactional one, he's not saying that David and his offspring will inherit big chunks of land somewhere. What he's saying is that the covenantal promises of the Lord, of the Lord will be kept. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And then, if it wasn't good enough already, he goes on to describe that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. This is not an up there and out there God. A distant God. This is a friend. And with His friend comes a promise. With His friendship comes a promise in verse 14 that God will make known His covenant to His friends. Close, trusted friends tell each other the most important and meaningful things. And so I'll, I'll close with this thought. Following Jesus means a radical breaking of our pride followed by the powerful infusion of God's mercy and truth into us. This is discipleship. This is feeling good about feeling bad. How are we to show mercy to others if we have not experienced great mercy ourselves? How are we to share the truth with others if we have not received the truth from the Lord? How are we to love well if we do not understand the depth of love with which God loves us? Beginning to understand this doesn't always mean that our experience on earth will immediately improve. The, re the remainder of, of David's prayer in this psalm from verse 16 onward, reveals the depth of his distress. He is lonely. He's afflicted. He has a very troubled heart. He has many foes in spite of all that. And more than that, he has a God whom he trusts, and that trust allows him to confidently wait upon the Lord and upon the Lord's response to his prayer. We too, through Jesus, can bring everything to Him. Trust Him. Worship Him for all the things we know are true about Him. And wait confidently for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You reveal Yourself to us in this psalm in light of, of who you are and, and, and what you do and, and these attributes that are, so, that are so beyond our ability to really understand your goodness, your uprightness, your faithfulness, your steadfast love. 
We thank you that through Jesus you've, you've given us the opportunity to, to ascend the hill to your table. You've given us the opportunity to stand before you as your friend and that you reveal to us your promises and your covenants and you shower upon us your mercy and your truth. Father, may we respond with full and joyful hearts to this good news. In Jesus' name, amen.